You're listening to Energy 360 from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm Sarah Ladislaw, Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy Program, and your host for this week. Today's podcast is actually the third episode on the key trends that we explored in the Energy Futures Forum. Uh, The Energy Futures Forum is an annual workshop where we explore issues that could significantly impact the energy sector over the next 10 years. As I explained in the previous episodes, we don't try to provide an outlook for the future, but instead we engage and challenge the energy communities thinking about how issues may evolve over a medium-term time frame and what those potential changes might mean for energy policymaking and decision-making. This year, we looked at sanctions, blockchain, and geopolitics of Latin America. Joining me today to discuss Latin America and the energy and geopolitical trends which will shape it over the next 10 years is Francisco Gonzalez, a professor with John Hopkins SICE. Thanks for being here today. Thanks very much. Thank you for the invitation, Sarah. So one of the reasons why we chose uh, geopolitics in Latin America is, uh, one, there's a lot of activity in this space. Uh, Two, Latin America is a really important Uh, energy region in the world, but is often sort of undervalued in terms of how much we think about geopolitical risk and energy, particularly relative to like other places like the Middle East, um, which I think, you know, oftentimes is more discussed in those terms. And one of the things we wanted to do was to get somebody who thinks about this from both the energy landscape perspective, but also in a sort of traditional international relations geopolitics perspective, which I think is really helpful to provide a wider sort of 360 perspective on the potential trends over the next 10 years. So maybe if we could just you know start with some of the basics um, from your research what are some of the you know, political trends in Latin America that we're seeing, um, particularly the ones that might have staying power you know, over the next several years to a decade? And what are you seeing as driving some of those trends? Okay, let's start with uh, main drivers in the politics of Latin America as they're connected um, to politics, to economics, to energy. Uh, the first thing to say is it's difficult to, to generalize This is a a very diverse region. You are absolutely right that, uh, at least from from the global perspective, it tends to be not overlooked, but certainly given the the current production and the future potential of many of these countries in oil, in natural gas, in renewables, um, it certainly takes a a backseat to uh, places like uh, the Middle East, or when it comes to modern renewables, say to Western Europe, these days China, the United States. Um, so having said that, uh, difficult to generalize because Argentina, Uruguay are very different from, say, Mexico or Guatemala or Honduras. Uh, there are, uh, I think, uh, a few factors that one can, uh, at least on average, uh, talk about uh, and uh, think that they more or less applied throughout the region. Uh, the first one would be the continuation of uh, uneven growth and development. Economic growth continues uh, to go disproportionately to economic and political elites, people who are well-connected in, the, uh, in these political systems. The end result with that, of course, is Uh, continuation or growth in conflict over the distribution of of income and and wealth. 
And some of, of the effects that this problem produces, of course, are things that we uh, tend to either see on, on television in, during uh, uh, news or to see um, on print, some of them very prominent, like violence, gangs, mass immigration, uh, land conflicts. Uh, many of these problems uh, are uh, certainly worse in poorer countries such as central, small Central American Caribbean countries. But you also uh, see this uh, disproportionate influence of very few over the majority in parts of Mexico, in many of the Andean countries like Colombia, like Peru, like Bolivia, Brazil definitely, maybe a bit to a less, lesser extent in countries uh, in the southern cone like uh, Argentina, like Uruguay, uh, like Chile. So that would be um, one first main driver, uneven growth and development, which creates social and political conflict. A second driver, uh, which probably helps to explain a bit the first one, is that uh, basic political and economic institutions tend to be uh, captured to serve the interests of these political and economic elites and their partners. Uh, their partners can be um, both domestic as well as foreign capitalists, but they can also be well-positioned labor union leaders. So it's insiders, people who have influence, uh, who can wield power, uh, who control funds, uh, and therefore the end result of this problem is uh, that in many countries we have a weak rule of law. Um, there's problem of state capture, uh, which accentuates inequality and which, um, very troublesome, creates among a majority of the population a sense of impotence, which in turn leads to fear, which in turn leads to anger. And fear and anger uh, among big groups of people usually tend to lead to the third driver, um, the third driver that I that I would underscore is the rise of, of uh, strong leaders, of populist leaders, who promise to to reverse problems one and two, uneven economic growth and development, weak captured institutions, um, by um, you know using uh, strong state force in the name of the people, in the name of the have-nots. Paradoxically, this, more often than not, tends to end up uh, producing a further weakening of institutions mm -hmm. because these leaders, uh, more often than not, personalize power. Mm. Dr. Gonzalez, I want to ask, I mean, does this... You've mentioned that populism and inequality in Latin America are not new phenomenon necessarily. Does it tend to go in cyclical waves? You know, is there a period of resolution? Like, how should we think about that driver over the next 10 years or so? Right. Um, I, I don't think it's, you know, um, similar to natural phenomena where, uh, you know. <laughs> it's not on a schedule. <laughs> it is not on a schedule. Um, but certainly uh, there uh, there's a takeoff and usually there's a facing out of these uh, uh, populist uh, episodes. Uh, the takeoff tends to coincide uh, with um, a variety of, of, uh, uh, of factors, but among them um, 
economic and or political crisis. So maybe the economic crisis of 2008 and the like. Certainly. The Great Recession and its aftermath, a majority of the countries have not done uh, very well. Um, and, uh, you know, grievances uh, continue uh, to, to keep uh, growing. The sense of hopelessness, the sense that there are no uh, proper formal sector jobs out there for people um, leaving university, for people in their 30s, in their 40s. So, so people in their prime um, um, in most countries do not find a, a fertile ground in order that they can uh, you know, develop their capabilities. So th that would be uh, one of the factors that helps the, the takeoff. The, the facing out, in, in some cases the collapse of populism, tends to um, be um, very, very closely related to um, an, an emptying of the wallets, mm -hmm. an emptying of the public purse. When the populist leader um, uh, starts being unable to meet some of those promises made to um, redistribute, to bring about social justice, um, and in spite of economic scarcity, they keep pushing by, for example, printing money or borrowing at exorbitant rates just to keep up the momentum, usually you end up with financial economic crisis of, of different proportions. Um, more often than not, uh, these crises have tended to um, help to finish the populist episode and uh, um, the people who have to pay for the uh, for the broken furniture, the broken China, uh, are, if you want, the mainstream politicians who have to come back in mm -hmm. and uh, readjust. So that is something uh, that you can bet, we, we don't know when, but you can bet that a situation like the one Venezuela has been living under uh, since particularly 2013, 2014, is unsustainable. And that's going to change. And the change will uh, entail a um, uh, circulation uh, of uh, in government office, um, potentially by uh, groups that are quite anti the current regime. We don't know when. I mean, you, you brought up Venezuela. The two things that, that you've said that I think are particularly interesting in the sort of geopolitical outlook that immediately to me as an energy analyst stand out are one, there's enormous resource potential in the region, right? And that's Certainly. always been true. Um, but, you know, figuring out ways to turn that resource potential into actualizable resources that get developed and benefit the societies in which they exist has been a little bit harder for a number of, of the places in the region. And then the second is this idea that, you know, one of the one of the problems or one of the reoccurring sort of political features in the region is this vacillation between sort of unequal societies with captured economies that, you know, global capitalists come in and put their money into the, the area, but it doesn't necessarily equitably benefit everybody and therefore and the, and the institutions and rule of law are weak. And then you get something that is a much stronger leader that, you know, kind of exacerbates that problem. And I think for the energy sector, that has very much looked like 
uh, going from a potential, you know, a potential place where you can invest money, particularly the oil and gas industry, and you can make some, you know, some long-term plans around that to an industry that gets expropriated or the rules get changed, and and so it makes it for a very a hard place to do sort of durable long-term business. Uh, that just you know been my perspective on how those the sort of you know geopolitics in the region affect the energy sector. I'm curious like how how you you think of it. Yeah, I think your your, your perspective sadly is sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, history bears out uh, to the fact that uh, Latin America has been a region um, probably after the United States. Uh, some of the countries in, in, in the region, like Mexico and Venezuela, were uh, the first where uh, oil uh, started being exploited commercially. Uh, you've got uh, uh, Mexican uh, oil production since the late 1880s, most of it connected uh, with uh, Standard Oil. And afterwards, during the Mexican Revolution that took place between 1910 and 1920, so another one, one of these instances, as you, as you mentioned, of um, investors pouring money into an economy, working maybe for 20, 25 years, and suddenly uh, the place goes up in flames, um, among other things due to uh, the structural inequalities, the injustice, um, that uh, are on the ground, and people, you know, pull out, and where do they go? Well, they went to Venezuela, and Venezuela becomes, uh, after Mexico, the second country in in the region where a lot of oil is is found, and uh, where Americans and Europeans start uh, pouring money. So, um, the 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 issue of great potential not being realized is intimately linked with the, on average, short-term horizons that investors have tended to to have regarding Latin American countries. And these short-term horizons are a consequence of the history. When when, when these investors look back at um, political stability, economic growth, general uh, macroeconomic numbers, what they see... um, uh, is uh, um, is or are because we're talking about a variety of countries are trajectories characterized by by booms and busts, uh, periods of, of great euphoria, high growth, followed by uh, dramatic falls. What's what's lacking or what has been lacking um, on average is you know sustainable four five percent growth annually with price stability in a setting where institutions uh, manage to channel resources in a way that there there is a, a real trickle-down effect that helps some of the wealth being created uh, reach the bottom. Uh, the energy business, of course, is, is a, a, a business with long-term horizons. It requires deep pockets, significant commitment to decide to go into a place, um, given that many of the projects um, um, are, you know, long maturity. You're not going to see a profit um, until, unless you persevere and you stay uh, 10, 15, 20 years. So 
the socioeconomic landscape uh, of Latin America has obviously tended to be, um, uh, you know, relatively um, unwelcoming for this type of business model. However, this does not preclude us from finding, when we go back to the 1970s and 1980s, that countries like Mexico, like Venezuela, became top 10 oil producers in the world. Um, in some cases, it was the state that managed uh, these developments, and the state uh, was the one that dealt with the political risk uh, and subsidized uh, operations to ensure that they continued, irrespective of these economic political cycles. In others, it was more a uh, co you know, uh, cooperation and partnerships between state and uh, private sector, both domestic as well as foreign. That was certainly the case in Venezuela um, until the early 70s. Even after the Venezuelans nationalized the oil industry in 1974, uh, they continued to allow and to welcome private partnerships. Mm -hmm. So the, the major uh, companies, the major oil and gas companies, American, British, uh, Dutch, as well as you know Russian, Iranian, um, operated in Venezuela and, and helped that country uh, uh, to become you know a, a top ten producer all the way to the to the late uh, 1990s. So Brazil and Mexico both have had elections that have brought in um, you know what I would say is probably your second you know your third driver from the initial conversation, which is a much stronger, perhaps more. Um, populist oriented, who knows, maybe authoritarian kind of leadership style. Um, what do you think that might mean for the energy sector in, in both of those countries, both of which are very, very important uh, and still considered really important um, on the oil and gas side of the equation uh, for renewables on a, on a whole host of fronts? Certainly. Uh, you, you hit a very uh, soft spot there for uh, for Latin Americans today. Because these uh, uh, 2018 elections definitely were um, have have been regarded as a as a pivot, if, if by pivot we we mean a, a shift in direction, um, a shift in the direction of uh, of mainstream politics, uh, economics. We don't know. We'll see when these uh, presidents take take over. Andrés Manuel López Obrador um, on the left in Mexico and uh, Jair Bolsonaro uh, on the right in Brazil. Um, the, the shift in direction, uh, I think, uh, is um, una unanimously accepted. These, uh, these are people whose proposals, whose government proposals uh, are not mainstream. Uh, in the case of López Obrador, the winner of the Mexican election, he is trying uh, to go against what had been more than 30 years of continuous policy making uh, along the lines of being uh, conservative in macroeconomic management, being uh, pro-private business, friendly towards foreign capital, uh, being pro-American -Ameri and in that sense uh, pro-Washington DC and directives uh, coming out from Washington DC. And López Obrador is not necessarily trying to undo all of these things. Um, I doubt that he is, like some people have said, um, an Hugo Chávez uh, in the making. But he certainly is someone um, 
of, you could call it the old nationalist school. Uh, someone uh, who feels uh, not very comfortable or confident in the presence of uh, foreign economic activity, particularly if that activity uh, is making a lot of money in Mexico. And uh, uh, he and people of his persuasion believe that more of that money should stay in the country and should be used for social policy, for social programs, rather than uh, you know, just to be paid uh, for uh, in dividends to shareholders who live in the U.S., in Spain, in Denmark, in Finland. So there's a nationalism there um, which uh, has obviously spooked the markets. I understand uh, the, the reason, and I, I share in part uh, some of that concern. Um, what I would I would qualify the uh, the nightmare scenario of ending up with uh, Hugo Chavez in Mexico by saying that uh, this individual is uh, someone who comes uh, from the mainstream. He started within the mainstream, and most of his political life has been spent in the mainstream. Uh, he is um, uh, a keen and um, uh, intelligent, astute wheeler and dealer who uh, shows when he's been in power, he was mayor of Mexico City in the early 2000s, for example. Uh, he led the, the left-wing party, the PRD in Mexico uh, as well. Uh, he, he's shown capacity for uh, flexibility. Um, if you want, he's shown capacity to play ball with um, both Mexican as well as uh, foreign business. My sense is that if numbers for Mexico, economic numbers for Mexico uh, start looking bad or start worsening, uh, he, um, in this pragmatic stance, will be forced to accommodate and to shift towards, uh, towards the center in order that he can if you want, meet some of the promises he's made about social justice and redistribution. Oh, that's interesting. So I, I, I mean, just to put a finer point on some of what you've said, I think the 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 idea here or the way in which people anticipate that AMLO's energy policy will work out is, you know, really he's going to review some of the contracts that have been signed with the oil and gas industry over the last several years and evaluate them for their sort of cost benefit to the Mexican public, right? That's the assumption of what's going to happen. Um, but you're saying, you know, he is he's really sort of, you, you know, um, a, a very astute politician that may, if there's not as much economic growth cling more to those outside investors and that way of driving growth as opposed to becoming more nationalistic in the face of an economic downturn. That is, that is correct. I, I, you're, you're, the way you, you summarized the first part was, uh, um, was brilliant because it does capture uh, his program. Uh, since the energy sector was opened in Mexico 2013, 2014, uh, probably close to a hundred licenses have been issued, and you have um, the largest companies, private companies, state-owned companies, to medium-sized to small companies now uh, uh, operating in Mexico. What he has said is, I'm not going to touch those licenses. Those licenses um, are, uh, you know, are under contract. Uh, they they are protected by the law. I want to see 
uh, how they perform. And in about two years' time, so you know, close to midterm elections, uh, make a pronouncement as to if their performance um, is not just financially, economically sound for them, but if it's also uh, leaving resources in Mexico, if it's creating uh, uh, a fiscal base or helping to strengthen uh, the, the relatively weak Mexican fiscal base to then commit to his uh, social agenda. Uh, I do want to talk about Brazil, which has, you know, had its own uh, sort of landmark election. And to me, you know, really interestingly, since the discovery of pre-salt oil in Brazil, in despite, you know, headwinds on the economic side, political, you know, corruption and, and you know, catastrophe and the car wash scandal and all of those things ha- has has still maintained it, this role in like the global oil market and investor circles as being an area of great potential. Um, is that going to change with this election, or is it? You know, what do you what do you think we should be watching? Um, in in the case of Brazil, I see the the opposite of what I see in Mexico. Um, the, the similarities in in the in the pivotal nature of the election. Yes, this is a, a shift in direction because. A non-mainstream politician has been uh, elected. But in the case of uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, what you have is uh, the return of conservative, potentially authoritarian government in Brazil, something that the Brazilians had not seen uh, since the military left in 1985 and potentially the first uh, of the of the uh, civilian presidents after the military, uh, José Sarney, uh, who was not elected popularly, uh, directly, um, and and who was a, a close ally of the military, but but Brazil has had three decades of center left, center center right government. So Bolsonaro is is promising to undo um, some of the uh, measures which, in the view of many, pushed Brazil too much into the the statist resource nationalism, anti-business-friendly um, camp. Um, if, if this is to be the case, I, I'd say two things. One, this has been happening already. Um, the, the outgoing substitute president, Michel Temer, um, who took over after President Dilma Rousseff of the uh, Workers' Party was impeached, um, this president... Uh, who, who, who was a substitute and in many ways had nothing to lose by uh, turning back on, on some of the uh, statist, nationalist uh, policies that ended up coming across as impediments to do business in Brazil, already turned somewhat the tables because uh, things like local content for Um, people upstream, midstream, have been relaxed. Uh, They are are less than they used to be. Petrobras, the the, the main oil company in Brazil, will not be a leader in every single project and will not be the sole operator in uh, uh, many of the projects in Prisalt. This is something that the previous, the worker party's governments had asked Petrobras to do, and it it was too much. Mm -hmm. 
for Petrobras or any other company in the world uh, to have managed to create an oil revolution uh, at 5,000 meters of depth and start pumping uh, 5 million barrels a day within, within five, seven years. Impossible, impossible. So some of the, of the measures have already been reversed. And in the last year, year and a half, we've seen already um, even quite conservative, um, uh, risk-averse companies like ExxonMobil go back to Brazil and sink significant amounts of money, to, to $2 billion, if I understand correctly, the last, uh, um, their last uh, incursion in Brazil uh, a few months ago. Um, the uh, the Europeans, Total, Eni, Shell, are back in, in Brazil. They like uh, Presal and they see that as a long-term good business proposition. And the, and the last point, the second, the, the second issue is despite the, uh, the terrible corruption cases, the rottenness of the system that was exposed through the Lava Jato and which sadly had as one of its epicenters Petrobras, the company retains very significant proprietary knowledge very significant technological uh, um, and, and uh, know-how and can-do uh, uh, practices which allow it to retain a comparative advantage, particularly in very deep uh, sea drilling. That remains the case uh, with or without the corruption uh, scandal. So a lot of the human technical um, and uh, uh, big infrastructure assets that Petrobras has remain there. They suffered a significant discount as a, as a result of the uh, corruption scandal, but the goods remain on the ground and the company continues to um, uh, explore and operate and drill in 15 or 16 other countries. It's the only Latin American company uh, by far, with that uh, with that prowess, with that capacity. So, uh, in conclusion, from 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 that perspective, I do buy the uh, estimates, the forecasts, the positive perspectives that say, look out, Brazil by 2025 might be pumping 4.5 5 million barrels of oil per day. Brazil can become a uh, top world oil producer. I think I think that is possible and doable with or without Bolsonaro. So uh, we'll see. Hopefully some of the more radical uh, governments, and, uh, and there by radical I mean both uh, at the left uh, of the spectrum, the ultra-nationalist statist, as well as the doctrinaire neoliberals, Government is the problem. Markets are the solution. That 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 those uh, extremes uh, are avoided. Give, given that Latin America is home to magical realism, I wouldn't be entirely confident that 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 uh, those extremes can be avoided. But the region will will remain, uh, as you said, r- very rich in oil, in natural gas, in renewable energy. Uh, potential. So um, we move on. 
Well, Dr. Gonzalez, we're going to have to leave it there for today, but I can't think of a better place to leave it than magical realism. That seems like <laughs> a very appropriate environment for us to, to stop. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. It was really, really insightful. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And you've been listening to Energy 360. 